0: Welcome to Camera Ready and Abel, the podcast that explores the intersection of media change and personal growth. I'm your host, Barbara Barna Abel, and my calling is to help you tap into your superpowers, hone your message, and make an impact on the world. This is a special episode of the podcast because while I'm away enjoying a holiday with my family, I am sharing my episode as a guest on Nicole Tremoglia's podcast, Nostalgia, where I had a blast going deep, discussing what I love to talk about, pop culture, change and personal growth. If you're new to the podcast, Nicole was actually a guest on Camera Ready and Able a while back discussing the important difference between building a community and building an audience. If you haven't met Nicole before, she is also a branding consultant, pop culture expert, writer and self-described millennial sporty spice.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Nostalgia. I am super excited today. I have Barbara here as my guest, and she's had quite the career in pop culture and media. And I'm really excited to talk with her about the intersection of pop culture and media and personal growth as well. And two of my favorite things that she talks about are letting go of the shoulds, and also how to stand out while fitting in. I think that that's kind of been an interesting dichotomy of being able to totally embody who you are and be yourself, and at the same time, getting to progress toward whatever kind of goals you have. So, hi. Welcome, Barbara. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. I'm excited too. So, tell us a little bit about... Where kind of the inspiration for you came with fusing pop culture and it's almost like personal branding, but also yes, inspiration and a little bit of motivation there too to get people really embodying who they are in order to show up as themselves.
0: I love the way you positioned the question and put those things together because I've never quite thought about it that way. So one thing I'll say is I... I think similar to you, was always a pop culture kid. Like um, I unapologetically grew up watching a lot of television and I fell in love with music when I was, well, probably in elementary school um, and loved my equivalent of boy banders light years before your, your generation of boy banders, but really fell in love with music like when I was in um, middle school. but. Getting to the other part of the question, I think one of my mar- most marked characteristics my entire life has been my enthusiasm. I get very enthusiastic about things. <laughs> and um, and I'm a natural cheerleader. And so, so the reason I'm saying all that is I didn't really have a sense of that, that that was marketable or that was something that was even valuable in an office or a marketplace, but something that uh, through my life, people have always commented on. And then fast forward, When I landed at VH1 in the 1990s, which was just the most glorious time to be at MTV Network. So it was the jewel in the crown was MTV, VH1 and Nickelodeon. uh, It was just an incredible time. And they invested enormously in their employees. And it was the first time I ever worked somewhere that had a huge training and development department. And they uh, they really spent money on us. And that was when I started to find that these natural skills I had were valued and they were identified by the executives I was working with and I was encouraged to go take different kinds of trainings to develop that side of myself and it combined with because I was running the talent development department and so the idea that those two things went together skipping ahead that is how I started to become a casting director because I didn't know what that was and I didn't know it meant anything but part of that was we worked with so many non-actors whether they were hosts and one to being VJs but also a lot of celebrities and experts in our space like a lot of music journalists and different kinds of commentators, we did the VH1 Fashion Awards, we were working with fashion, all sorts of people who did not have experience on camera. And it was my job as a casting director to get a performance out of them. And so that's when I started to tap into that and started to understand about making people feel comfortable. Also having a natural eye for talent and being able the ability to see what somebody had inside of them that maybe they didn't even see about themselves. So that's kind of my long winded, you know, long way around the barn answer to your question. And then I I wanted, I wanted the full story. (laughs) (laughs) And then eventually I was like, Oh, this is a thing. And I should put some intention behind it. And then eventually I went and actually did training and became certified as a professional coach. So I could bring all these things together.
1: That's exciting. And that's something that I've actually thought about many times over the Mm -hmm. years where it's like, you think that you have all of the resources, right? It's like you have the internet, but there's still so many little boxes of what careers we're allowed to have or we should have. And you think, hmm, I know I'm super enthusiastic about anything and everything (laughs) that I do. And I love pop culture. And you think, oh, but I'm not a journalist or I'm not a pop star or I'm not. And you just think of all of those kind of narrow paths to where it seems like you want to go. Oh, you want to work at MTV. Oh, well, I'm not insert job title into the blank. And so what kind of advice would you have for someone who feels like they have this potential in them? And to be honest, this podcast is part of that fulfillment for me and seeing, okay, you just, you know, deep inside that you are meant for more and that you have this love and this passion for something, be it pop culture or whatever. And you think, there has to be some kind of way to bridge the gap between, I mean, it's a potential gap really, because you have that knowing, but not necessarily the knowledge on how to execute.
0: Okay. You kind of answered your question and, and gave really wonderful examples because you're creating your podcast is an enormously valuable and valid So so you really, you you brought up a question and you also answered it. There there are kind of different prongs to that because, so when I was growing up, I didn't have any friends, relations, any connection to the entertainment industry. And I was told no a lot, a lot of, you know, I was often told, you don't have any relatives, you're never going to make it so it's through internships so my point is don't don't take no for an answer Um, and i didn't have the internet then so it's just sort of stumbling forward with enthusiasm but the reason i bring this up is so i always dreamed of working in the music business and i succeeded to get employed in the music business and it's not till afterwards till i found incredible success and my calling and tapping into my superpowers working in the combination of music and television did i really understand I wasn't meant to be in the traditional music business or that part of the business because I'm neither an artist nor I, am I a marketer salesperson and people who are great at sales have all my respect. I'm not an attorney. Um, I'm not a manager. So all those things, it's like there really wasn't a place for me there. But when I landed in TV, which was about storytelling and taking all the different talents that I haven't had a value around that was like, suddenly I could flourish. So one is to, you know, do the inventory and do the self-assessment and figure out like, well, what are my strengths and what are my skills? Two, if you realize there's something that you think I would love that or might be good at, I'm a big believer in lifelong training. Like I'm never, not taking classes and learning and getting going better and getting deeper. So, um, you know, just cause I am certified in coaching, I'm constantly upping my certifications and doing other kinds of trainings to become better at that. So one of the things is figure out what you're really great at and then figure out where the opportunities are, where you might be able to create opportunity and not be afraid to try stuff too, because to your point, you right. It's easy to be like, well, I don't. Um, okay. I don't have that skill. Okay. Fair enough. So one, it's dip your toes. Um, don't be afraid to ask questions, learn to reframe your questions because maybe you don't, you don't even know what you don't know. So you're not necessarily asking to get yourself there, but so don't be afraid of like, you know, trying stuff and and not working out so you can learn from that. But there are ways to figure out like, where can I fit in? And one of the things that popped into my head too, is this idea like, we live in the era, your podcast is a perfect example of this, of the super fan where you don't Mm. have to, I meant like a lot of legitimacy and the fact that people have taken being a super fan and translated that into big brands and business. And I bring that up because you could say, well, I'm not a journalist. That's true. But you know what, if you keep showing up consistently and providing quality content, You're creating a lane for yourself. And many people have started with podcasts and blogs and different things in the super fan category that have become springboards and becoming really, really credible. And a lot of those people I've watched along the way, behind the scenes, training, taking writing classes, getting mentorship from people, learning, studying the work that they're doing and learning out how can I constantly make my content better? Hope that answered your question. Yeah, Yeah.
1: absolutely. That's incredible. And I think... It's really interesting that you mentioned the super fan era too, because I am such a believer in it. And that's even how I started my TikTok account is because I love the band BTS. And so I would be making all these BTS videos and you would see tens of thousands of people start to like these videos and view these videos. And you would think, wow, this is really incredible. The fact that all these people can come together and be united and share. It's really a parasocial relationship with these bands. And from there, I'm like, you know what? That makes you realize, okay, I can tell these stories. Okay. I am able to pose thoughtful questions to a community and be able to spark ideas and advance conversations. And so I think that actually was really kind of a springboard for me to even I don't know if I would have this podcast if it wasn't for just making TikTok videos about BTS. And it's like, I knew that I didn't want my brand to be around one music act or singer or anything, but just knowing that I believe in the power of community so much and just in, in music in general, music to bring people together, to foster a sense of belonging, to just kind of like transport them to a particular place in time with certain people in their lives, that's always what I'm trying to channel. And I think that connecting back to what you said, finding out what you are good at, I think when you're doing it, you kind of get that feeling too. You're like, wait, it's not because of a number of likes or comments or whatever. It's because you, you put something out into the world that – and it kind of, it sounds a little bit silly if I say like you made a TikTok video you're proud of, but like it's twenty twenty two, so we
0: can we can go I, ahead and say that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, I yeah. Okay. Iksnay on people who cast aspersions on that. Course, that's awesome. Yeah. Okay. okay, one one, I I really want to start with I loved your beautiful statement of purpose. I believe Thanks. in the power of community. That's incredible. And that informs everything that you do, and I just mm-hmm. think that's incredible. So that's another point for your listeners: is really the power of understanding your purpose and what you know makes you glow. That's incredible. But the other thing too is, um, hey, Nicole, you're doing it. Yeah. You're creating content. So I don't. Wow. I just had to stop and marinate on that for a second. The idea that um, you feel for any second that you should question, you know, making a, a video on TikTok. That's amazing. You're reaching people. And I think it's really powerful to make someone's day. Life is hard, even without a pandemic. Life is hard three years ago for many of us. So if you make someone smile or that shared connection, that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. I think that a little bit of my career
1: transition imposter syndrome was just showing because I Mm. I know that that's like a buzzword right now, but I really didn't feel it until I left corporate. And that timing really aligned. I left my corporate fashion job in New York city one week, all of seven days before lockdown. And so it was just, it was really interesting timing, but finally feeling like, Oh, wow. When you get imposter syndrome, it's because you, you're actually taking action and you're bridging a knowledge gap because when you're complacent and kind of staying in the same place and you're not consciously always looking to grow and learn and expand and put yourself in rooms with people who not only help you do that, but you facilitate their growth and expansion in some kind of way, you know, with a mutual benefit. That's the hard thing. It's easy to sit and complain at your job or to stay in the same place or to say, well, I mean, it's not bad. I guess this kind of is just the way it." is and look at the life that you really want as aspirational when I felt like this a lot. This connects to the shoulds because on paper, oh, I work at these impressive fashion companies, look at my resume, look at my zip code in Soho in New York City. And it really wasn't until the pandemic to be like, wait, it's time to totally rethink what was societal conditioning versus what do I really want in life, and going a few levels deeper. Okay, I want this. Why? Okay, next level deeper. Why? And keep asking yourself until you really get to like the core root of things. And I think that's tricky too, figuring out what you actually want for yourself.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Um, that was beautiful, by the way. Thanks. Um, good for, yeah, no, good for you. And, you know, part of that one is that, um, you know, staying in your comfort zone or is a false construct of safety, which I think Mm. you understand in the work that you do, it feels superficially safe. I mean, it kind of, but the fact that, but being stuck isn't actually safe. Um, and that's when I get into like why you shouldn't focus on strictly on fitting in, but how do I stand out a little bit and like, it doesn't mean you have to go crazy and be like way out there, but it meant that um, if you're just in the mushy middle. And so to your point is uh, life is short. And so if the safety zone at the end of that, that's actually not a safe place because you're going to wake up one day with less time or less opportunity to change. Right. So it's like constantly, and I don't think it's a, an either or proposition. You don't, it's like, I'm either safe or I'm scared out of my wits. No, we can find different gradations. And to your point too, about imposter syndrome is sometimes it's like our bodies and our subconscious talks to us. So it's like, what's the message that I'm getting? What should I be paying attention to? What's the lesson here? What's the question I'm going to ask? Um, how do I want to feel if I don't want to feel this way? I mean, there are bajillion questions that we can ask, but it's really important to stop and listen Going, oh, okay. Like a little anxiety is good. It's talking to you. So that's, you know, really, really important. And then at the end of the day, your point is like, but what do I really want?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I always say how the universe kind of presents you with the same challenge over and over. And oh, so I couldn't agree. Make... We are so
0: simpatico. Right? I, I'm, a hu- I'm a huge believer in signs. Mm-hmm. They're everywhere. If you're open to seeing them, you just, you know, ev- literally everywhere. And I'm a little too, So sometimes I'm not kidding. I will look up and see what I need to read, like on a billboard. I'm like, that was funny, universe. I got you, though.
1: Yeah, it's so funny. <laughs> and I will pick my favorite sign that I like to see that's just a, just a sign like everything's good in this present moment, everything is okay. Kind of the way that that they say, oh, if you get deja vu, it means like, oh, you're in the right place at the right time, whatever. Okay, this is my version of that. My first car when I was 16 was a red Ford Focus like a 2002 Ford Focus and they don't make that kind of car anymore but I see them now I see them on the road I see them well yeah I guess that's mostly where you would see a car but right, (laughs) I see them fairly often and I'm like no it's I don't want to look for the 2016 Ford Focus okay maybe I saw a tan one or a blue one but like the actual older version of the red car. Whenever I see that, I'm just like, I'm, I'm doing good. Oh, I love it. So what was
0: your first concert?
1: Oh, okay. I think my, so, you know, when you're a kid and you go to concerts and your parents bring you, but it's kind of more like a, a kid's show. I know I went to a few randomly, but my first like concert as a, a true fan, I guess was sync in, I think in 2001, because I actually went to a vintage show recently and got a shirt of which now it's vintage, even though <laughs> it's from like 1999. Yeah. I got that shirt. Cause I'm like, wait, was that the concert I went to? And I was talking to my mom about it. Cause she brought me and my sister and she's like, I wouldn't have brought your six-year-old sister to the sync concert. So I'm like, okay, maybe she was a little young. And then we came to realize it was, in fact, 2001, like right when pop came out, wait, whatever. I might be mixing up the years a little bit, but <laughs> sync.
0: Oh, fabulous. How about you? Oh my God. I remember mine really well. By the way, back in my day, parents did not take their kids to concerts. It was like a different era um really anyway my first concert was the who at anaheim stadium i was a massive 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 fan i was in eighth grade um this is like when the music business is on the cusp so it's a sold out show there are 55 of us in a, in a baseball stadium um i could not believe that roger Daltrey and i were in the same place at the same time so it was like Gitty, giddy, giddy, giddy. with my older brother and my dear friend, Nancy. And, but like they ran out of water in the stadium, the bathroom stopped working. So it's like the concert business hadn't really caught up. It's such a different era now. Um, and wildly diverse opening acts. I mean, I still have my ticket stub. I still remember Rufus and Shaka Khan, which was amazing. Um, Little Feet, amazing. And the Billy Gibbons band who nobody else remembers, but it's like, it's like, it just like shows like that wouldn't exist anymore, but it was amazing. I've seen the, the who a bunch of times since it was great. And then my second concert was Bruce Springsteen. I was in the third row.
1: Wow. Santa Monica Civic.
0: He was just on the cusp. So that was a big show. Cause he never played a venue that small again. I mean, except yeah. for like surprise shows now, but it was great. And Bob Marley. So those were my big, my three big shows in eighth grade. Really good. Wow.
1: That is so exciting. Oh my God. I loved it. Yeah. My dad and I talk a lot about the kind of, transition of the music business. He actually co-wrote a book on Led Zeppelin's concert. Wow. Um, Yeah. Their, their whole, their whole career, um, commemorized in it's like, I can't call it a coffee table book because there's way too much like valuable information in it for it to just be a book that sits on your coffee table without you opening it up a million times. And referencing it. And yeah, there are pictures of ticket stubs and venues. And it's absolutely incredible. And and to be like, wait, you went like the T the Led Zeppelin t-shirt that everybody wears around now, like you and mom had the real ones, and you went to a concert for eight dollars and fifty cents. It's really interesting to see how there there was that shift in the music industry from not having bathrooms working to it becoming, I guess commercialized might be a good word to sum it all up where it's like, now there's merch. Now there's, or in a way that didn't quite. Well, I just think it became before. much more professional is,
0: is <laughs> it was like, it became less renegade. And it's funny. Cause I want, you know, I worked in the concert business, but I want to say for your listeners who are probably younger, I cannot underscore how massive Led Zeppelin was in the world. Cause now it, we live in much more of a hyper niche world, but then it you know was much more of a mono thing and led zeppelin were massive can't even tell you all over the world and especially huge in europe the way queen was huge in europe and a little bigger in europe than they were here but still massive yeah so that's really exciting
1: Definitely. And I talk a little bit about Nostalgia, too, because we're seeing it with Gen Z, where it's like they're obsessed with everything from the 90s, but they were born in 2004. (laughs) And I think about it because I have major Nostalgia for the 70s. And so Queen was my favorite band growing up. Really? And it's like, but I was... I was never old enough to go see well, I wasn't even born. So like I wouldn't have gone to see Queen in concert and to be able to have parents who were obsessed with music too and be like, wow, what was that experience like? And I wrote I wrote a piece on Medium not too long ago earlier this year about the difference between nostalgia and nostalgia being, you know, whether or not you had that firsthand experience of it. And It first occurred to me when I went to Target and I saw a teenager with his mom behind me in the checkout line. He was wearing a My Chemical Romance t-shirt and I'm like, that kid was not even born. And then (laughs) I'm I'm wearing a Fleetwood Mac Rumors t-shirt and I'm like, oh my God, no. Like This is what I've always done my life too, but it was about the 70s and about classic rock groups and... So I understand that kind of experience that you can have where you are not there, you might not have even been born, but the way that music just has that impact and sometimes when you are trying to figure out, okay, who do I want to be? How do I want to show up? What do I value? Even fashion's a huge way that I mm-hmm. express myself and because expression is my core value, that's ultimately why I, I got into that industry in the first place is because you get to choose. You get to be whoever you want to be. And sometimes I think when people maybe don't have that inner guidance yet or like that inner voice uh, or even confidence to be able to say, okay, this is how I want to dress or whatever, they can look to these people on stage or on the television screen and it can be so inspiring for them.
0: Hmm. You know, I want to go back to something you said. So I really started to notice when my son was little, he's a hockey player and, um, and believe me, there's a thread to this was listening to the mu- the same music. Doesn't matter what, whether you're in a rink in Canada or a rink in the South or a rink in New York state, the same music plays all the time. And what I was riveted by was it's the who and Led Zeppelin. Um, anything who's next variety of early Led Zeppelin Drake, Eminem, Jay Z, um, White Stripes, like, you know, Seventh Nation, Seven Nation Army, maybe some my chemical romance. But the point is, um, these kids are this music that is some of it's 50 years old or more now to, you know, that just came out resonating. And I thought about, okay, when I was a kid, music that was 50 years old was not nobody my age was listening to music that was 50 years old except for me sometimes because it would have been in a very 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 old movie um and i loved movies um and i still do but so my point is there's something powerful that you're tapping into about the you know when you think about um if, if the boy at Target under, if he actually knows who My Chemical Romance is and why it speaks to him. Cause there's something about Gerard that's also pretty amazing between that, the music and Umbrella Academy, his his need to create and how he creates is fascinating. So it's like, what I was getting at is the fact that I, you know, and I'd love to hear like, what is it about, you know, Fleetwood Mac that resonates with you? Because I still listen to it and it's, and I was there for the first time. Um, do you know what I mean? That it's still, if it, there's some power in that, when I think about like, you know, my son six years old on the ice and listening to, you know, um, behind blue eyes or anything from who's next and listening to, to Drake and Eminem, I'm like, it's all speaking to him. And I actually thought a lot had to do with the beat. Oh, and ACDC, by the way, who I never mm-hmm. got in real time, but now I get it. Um, there's something about it's visceral. A lot has to do with the beats, literally mirroring how our heart beats. But what is it about Fleetwood Mac that speaks to you? Yeah,
1: I think huh. that even just seeing women in the space was really important to me. And when you look at classic rock, I mean, I can't make up a percentage, but most of them are men. And I think, oh, that, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe 99.9, <laughs> but like, you know what I mean? And so seeing women in this group and they could still be a part of a rock band. And listen, I love pop music more than anything. And I definitely see, I definitely see myself in kind of like the Cher and the Britney and and the big pop stars, but I love rock music too. And even just seeing, it sounds so corny. I feel like to say like girls can rock, but like basically, yeah. And I love seeing just kind of this this is definitely a nostalgic take on the 70s because I mentioned this trend, Groovival, a lot where it's like the the love for the 70s from the vantage point of the 90s. And just due to the sociopolitical atmosphere of the 90s, Groovival lacks some of the really meaningful context of what actually living on earth in the 1970s was like. So it's very easy to romanticize a well, this time. is deep,
0: Nicole. This is amazing. Keep going. This podcast
1: I'm tagline <laughs> is deep conversations about superficial things. Like this is, this Keep is going. what I think about. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, you know, it's so easy to romanticize this era and you think, wow, you know, my parents were teenagers and it was right before they met. And it's, it's really, a, it's about storytelling and it's about thinking like, wow, there was this world and even just the disco era, all of that fascinates me so much because you just you see this distinct kind of change in the clothing and the attitudes and even how it so interestingly segues from, because I very much love the kind of like flower power mod vibes of the 60s, how that transitioned into the 70s. And then from the 70s going full on glam and hairspray for the 80s to open up a You know, it's a beautiful segue into my era, the 90s. And I don't know, I just think about that kind of like continuity of time and being able to really see how these bands from the 60s, the 70s, the 80s really kind of like paved the way and opened up opportunities. And even if that opportunity, I think, especially because I'm a millennial, but Gen X just has such a strong ethos of like doing things differently, not being a sellout. Um, And seeing that era come through too, you know, even if the bands that had come before them solely gave that opportunity just for Gen X to not subscribe to the Mm -hmm. mainstream, that was a moment. And then when my generation comes along, it's like, we're the biggest sellouts of all time and how you see that go hand in hand with, not just culture, but with technology too, and with the evolution of social media. And I think now all the way down the line in 2022, Avril Lavigne's album that she released earlier this year is probably my favorite album of the year so far. I still have to listen to My Chemical Romance just came out with a new album. And something I wanted to mention too, thinking about hockey practice, when I was doing cheerleading, this was in the mid 2000s, I was doing cheerleading and I I did it for three years and two years I had two different coaches. One of the coaches, we only did routines with contemporary music. So it's all early 2000s pop and R&B songs. So Usher and Christina Milian probably and just some really awesome artists that we were all currently listening to. And my other cheerleading coach, was obsessed with all of the 80s bands. So we were always doing routines to Bon Jovi and Journey and ACDC too. There's just this certain niche of, of rock music that was always featured in cheerleading. Um Competition routines. I don't know. I I think it's just because of right, like that pounding, that adrenaline, and it's like you got to feel that before you go and like do five back handsprings. Yeah,
0: (laughs) (laughs) I was gonna say I had a little bit of a different '80s because I was in college radio and I loved British music, and so Britpop, which is popular now, it's amazing, but was not uh, the mainstream '80s that you think of now. So it's like um I mean I love the jam and the clash I still listen to the cure constantly big new order fan um anyway, t- anyway just lots and lots of like Britpop and synthesizers and human league and Duran Duran I have a soft spot for and um early u2 and all the bands so it's funny because it's like um certain 80s other people's 80s is different than my 80s which was actually an outgrowth of punk rock right and very mm. like um and the funny things that my kids still love to do is like they go thrifting I'm like that's what I did. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I just love seeing how the keeps going. And the other fun thing I was going to say is the connection of nostalgia you know, nostalgia, nostalgia is I fell in love with Harry Styles. It's got to be like five years ago now, whenever it was when I, because um, I was vaguely aware of One Direction. Um, but it's when, I don't know how it popped up in my feed, but when he did a surprise thing at the Troubadour Announcing his first album, and he did a duet with Stevie Nicks, and they sang "Landslide." And the love and respect he showed to Stevie Nicks, and I was like, I don't know who this kid is, but I love him, and I've been like a diehard Harry fan ever since because uh, Stevie was a uh, client in my first job. Wow! So I worked with did some work with her, so. um yeah. But I actually, so yeah. Amazing stories there. Um, and I love her, but I really actually wanted to ask you again, uh, what is your definition of selling out? Cause that was actually an interesting thing. Like if you step back, but you know, like everything is overly commercialized now, I would personally say, but there was, um, an anti, uh, sales thing that definitely comes out of DIY and punk rock. Um, and the, the Gen X thing that also is an inhibitor. Certainly if, when you have your own business, if you've come mm-hmm. up through that, that's a, that's a big block that I work with people to work through. So I'm really curious, like what that, is it possible to sell out? What does it mean to sell out? What, you know, on the scale, cause it's pretty gray. Where do we go from being validly commercial to, um, oh, we have no heart and soul left. Cause I mean, I think that's what gets into this nebulous region of like, is there any soul there?
1: Yeah, I think that it depends on what your values are. And then are you living consistently to those values? Because mm-hmm. I read well at the beginning of the year, I think Dan Ozzy wrote a book called Sellout. And so he chronicles the journeys of most popularly Green Day, Jimmy Eat World, even the Donnas. I loved seeing the Donnas uh, in there because in the early 2000s, I was like, wow, there's this girl, this girl group but they're not pop like everyone else like they're they rock and they play instruments and they're so cool and so yeah them having to make these choices okay are we going to kind of forget where we came from I think that's where like the con common connotation of selling out comes from it's that you have to betray like your values become so polar opposite to kind of like the motivations that you had when you were starting out and granted listen I think that if you don't look back on yourself from a few years ago and you're like, so it might be a little bit cringy. It's like, you're not growing. Like you want to be able to advance and, and change can be a good thing, but it's like, wait, I love this.
0: Let's celebrate the cringe. No one has ever said that. I love that. You're cringing, the you're, if you're cringing, you're doing something right. Oh, I love it.
1: Yeah. Um, because I would look back at things that I did and I'm like, Mm, I don't know. Maybe I should, (laughs) I don't know how how I feel about this, but it's like everything that you create is a reflection of how you feel about yourself in that moment. And you want to keep progressing toward whatever your goal is and to hopefully gain more confidence and insight along the way. And so does that mean that like, is expression ever going to not be my core value? No is in also to interrupt
0: you to go back to your point though there's no growth if you don't take a risk so that again mm. being safe isn't safe mm-hmm. that being safe actually means being stuck if we're using right. your definition so good for you go yeah. on and go on and go on and cringe on i love that so i'm sorry keep going expressing yourself yeah
1: well i was mm-hmm. gonna say it's not like expression and enthusiasm and connection and curiosity those are really the four pillars and it's like it's not like those are not going to be important to me. You know, I think that, yeah, like you said, if it involves taking risk and in addition to having a false sense of stability, I think security is a really important word there too because people think, okay, mm. if I have this job, it's secure and it's like, well, Secure in what? Just because you have a consistent paycheck coming, what if that paycheck amount is not your worth or you're not happy with it? Then what's secure about that? It's just consistent. It's just a pattern that you're used to. But what takes even more courage if you know that that paycheck is not aligned with me and my friends say highest and best, trademarked highest and best, like whatever happens, it's for the the highest and best purpose of who you are, who you can become. And that's like the scary path to take, but
0: it's so, so worth it. Oh yeah. Bet on yourself. And then again, to your point, false sense of security, actually, because we see it over and over again. It just takes one merger, um, one weird thing to happen in the stock tanks. Anyway, that suddenly that job that you thought was secure isn't secure. Companies mm. that seemed really steadfast, or sudden, you know, may have sudden massive layoffs. So that it's a that's a false narrative as well. That you know, again, I come from a different generation where I'm the last people who, when I was coming out of college, you still believe that you would have that one job for your entire career. Mm. It obviously vanished, you know, early in my day. So your point's really well taken. That um, I'm you know, bet on yourself. And then, and then, and then depending on where that goes, and then you're also the sense of like, where, where are your values? But the other thing, and I read about this all the time is again, going back to your sense of growth, artists have to grow. And so sometimes the thing that we fall in love with in an artist, um, awesome, but it's like, they're growing in a different direction. And so maybe with an open heartedness, just go, okay, they're going creatively in a different direction. I'm not going to hold it against them. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to get mad it's like, that's awesome. They got it. They're, they're going that way. And I'm going this way. And that, that's, that's all okay. But you know what I mean? Because we have the sense that I, and I get the same way too going, Oh yeah, I don't really like their later work. You know, I can be a little about it. And then I realized, well, what's the point that it's just like, I keep, you know, I love what I love and that's okay. But they, you, you, and I distinctly remember this. I had a fanzine way, way back in the day and interviewing the Go-Go's before they even had a studio album. Oh my God. And seeing that, you know, going to see them at the whiskey every week with X and all the early 80s um, LA bands, but the sense like they even talked about it's like, you know, every artist wants their music to be heard. And we were sitting there like, well, we don't want you to sell out and become corporate and like start playing stadiums, God forbid, like we wanted them to keep staying, you know, playing the whiskey go go to a few hundred people a night for the rest of their lives. Okay, not fair, not realistic right but like that would have been great for us if they were still doing right I, we didn't want to share them there's an also things i don't know if you're you know if you're an early adopter mm-hmm. you don't want to share your band with anyone or that artist or that filmmaker or that writer or whatever um and so that's on us as a, you know and i that may so that again comes part of like my generation coming up from you know a punk rock ethos that then shows up in the early sort of um Um, you know, like 90s grunge and Gen X ethos, but it's like, that's not fair. And um, so then we put a false, again, unfair notion into what it is to sell out. Mm. Everybody has the rights. Like, that's awesome. To your point, if you're still in line with your values, and you're doing quality work, and you care about the impact that you're making, and you know, bringing joy to the world, why shouldn't you be making a million, bajillion, gajillion dollars? Why not?
1: Yeah. I love being Mm -hmm. an early adopter, but I do think that there is a barrier between early adopters and the early mainstream in that people love gatekeeping. And I think that's a little bit heartbreaking to see because you should want to grow. If they're your favorite artist, I mean, it's like your friend, your family, you want to see them grow and progress and get better and be better and do what they love doing. But are you because you don't want to grow and change and learn with them? Are you ultimately holding them back Ooh, so well from said. that? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a really interesting perspective to take, and I think that any time you've seen an artist, kind—I of, mean, because it happens all the time when they'll they'll come out with a new album, it will be something slightly different, and. I think that now because we're used to kind of everything being sold to us, it's very easy for fans to be like, oh, well, their, their management just made them do that. That's not authentic to them. That's not the real them. And it's like, well, you don't actually know the real them. This part of the business is to be able to sell things to fans. And so it's like, I think understanding with fans too. And I think BTS is the closest I've seen with this and, Maybe Taylor Swift too where it's like their fans genuinely want the best for them and almost <laughs> like too much, almost to a to a gatekeeping extent because it is a parasocial relationship. You don't know Taylor Swift personally and so you have to kind of let her do what she wants to do but at the same time respect when someone is growing and that gives fans the
0: choice of how they want to grow too. Wow, that was so beautifully said. And you know what, when you started, I was thinking, oh, there can be certain parallels from the gatekeeper point of view in other glamour areas. You know, like fashion when, uh, you know, a street brand or something gets hot and suddenly it's like, well, that's not cool. Then if all that, if everybody's wearing it, I don't want to wear it. Um, it can happen to restaurants, certainly in places like LA, New York or anywhere where it's the idea of being hot. Um but as you went deeper, I realized, you know, it is such a unique situation in music because of the emotional connection and because um, music there and the, the, there's neuroscience around this, the way, you know, music is so tied. And even in your whole branding around nostalgia, but I mean, music is so completely tied to memory and how our ability to remember memorize and to trigger even the sense of, you know, as a memorization technique for everyone from the work I do as a media coach, when you're trying to memorize something, if you put it into either rhythm or to song, you will memorize it much easier and faster than if you're just doing it as, as, you know, narrative or language. So I'm bringing that up because our, the best music speaks for us. And that's where we start to take this sense of ownership and it's really powerful and it's really important. Um, But to your point, we don't actually know. And we actually have to hold space then for these artists who speak for us. To your point, so beautifully said. Thanks. I think
1: Britney Spears is a really good contemporary example of this Mm -hmm. because in the midst of the Free Britney movement, you know, you'll see some fans where they will be like, wow, now she can record a new album or whatever. And I'm like, I don't want her to. To be totally honest, I'm really, I have such strong memories with her songs growing up. And if she wants to lead a private life from now on, and if she wants to just get married and have her family and, and do what she wants to do, I am okay with that. And I think that being a fan, yeah, I, I really do in the most optimistic way possible. You want the best for that person, even if that thing isn't the best for you. Like, would we want her to be making music forever? Yes, hypothetically. But realistically, it is really interesting to see how that parasocial relationship runs parallel to the rest of the relationships that you have in life, whether it's a friend or somebody who, you know, there's ebbs and flows in all of these relationships. And sometimes people are in your life more closely, sometimes, than they are in others. And I think being able to give that celebrity or that stranger, that musician grace in, okay, maybe it's time. It's a different season now. I think it's a really definitely people don't look at it this deep, but like I think about it.
0: Okay. That's love. That's also incredibly (laughs) mature because to your point, I don't know that making music right now is the healthiest thing for Britney Spears. And also to your point, it was incredible. The, Momentum and to watch the free Britney movement, but she doesn't owe us anything, Mm -hmm. right? She doesn't owe us. And, um, but what you just said about holding space and grace, that's incredible. So, like, you're a true loving fan. I mean, that's beautiful.
1: Thank you. And I think that I'm finally. I finally have no shame around being a fangirl. I think that when I was growing up, right? I think when I was growing up, it was like, okay, you're allowed to show up, but not be too much. You're allowed to be enthusiastic, but don't go overboard. You're allowed to speak your mind, but don't do it too much so that other people are kind of questioning you. It's like, no, if you have good intentions and you have genuine enthusiasm, maybe I think Taylor Swift actually might have said something about that recently where it's like, if you have enthusiasm for something, like go ahead and express that there's no shame in that. Cause I think that that is kind of like that, that early adopter air of, I don't know. It's a little bit of pretentiousness where it's like, Mm -hmm. Oh, well like I'm cool, but like I'm calm and collected also let's not (laughs) go crazy where one time I was in a restaurant in, new york city and i was about to be seated and someone's like don't freak out but justin timberlake is right behind you and i was like i'm like this is gonna take everything i have to not completely bug and just pretend that i'm a normal downtown cool girl yes i'm eating dinner five minutes away from my own apartment It's not like I followed him to the restaurant, but like knowing that Justin Timberlake and Jessica Biel are sitting next to me for an hour and a half eating dinner. I was like, wow, this is taking all the respect, but it was out of a place of respect. It wasn't like, let me not be a fangirl because I'm trying to suppress it, but it's like out of respect of, wow, this guy's music was like so influential in my coming of age maybe I should be the one person in this restaurant that allows him and his family to eat in peace.
0: Mm. Well, amen to all of that. Cause I'm with you. I'm an unapologetic fan girl. And um, it is so true. It's like celebrating my inner dork every day, you know, embracing the uncoolness every which way.
1: It's fun. Mm-hmm. And I think you find your people who are the same way. And even a few of my, Friends from high school that I'm still friends with today, we first bonded when we were young because we like Queen and we like the Beatles Mm. and we listened to Led Zeppelin and a friend's parents had this big vinyl collection. So we would listen to vinyl in her living room and things like that where – maybe like kids in the 2000s were not listening to vinyl records, but we were, and maybe that wasn't a cool thing. Now they sell them at Urban Outfitters. It's a cool thing. But before it was even a cool thing, I think, I think being a little bit, they call it trend agnostic. Like I, as much as I love trends, I love fashion. I love the cutting edge of things. I also love my stuff too. And I think really realizing when you're a creature of habit, And being like, even when this thing isn't the most absolutely in vogue thing there is, it's still something that brought me together with other people. It's something that we bond over and something that still can bring
0: us joy now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And again, goes back to the super fan. One of the greatest super fans of all time, Andy Cohen, built an empire from being a super fan. And I admire that every day.
1: I saw him walking down the street in New York once too. I'm like eating an acai bowl and I'm like, how
0: about that? Well, he's Mr. New York. You should see him on the street.
1: Yeah. I want to thank you so, so much for being here with me today. I could probably talk to you for two more hours. Likewise. This has been so much fun. Can you let everybody know where they can get in touch with you?
0: Absolutely. I am easy to find. So you can always find me via my website, ableintermedia.com. And it's able, A B E L, intermedia.com. I have my podcast, Camera Reading Able. Also, you can find it on my website, but wherever you listen to podcasts, um, if you visit my website, you can download my free ebook, 12 Tips for Success on Camera and Off, which is highly relevant for anything, not even on camera, but for every Zoom call, job interview, etc. And then I'm on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, somewhere else, Facebook, but at, at Barbara underscore B underscore Abel, A-B-E-L. Love to connect.
1: Awesome. Thanks again, Barbara. And we will see you next time, guys. Thank
0: you. Thank you for listening to this special episode of Camera Ready and ABLE. If you're interested in one-on-one training for you or your team, please shoot me a note and please be sure to visit ableintermedia.com and download my free ebook, 12 Tips for Success on Camera. And as always, please hit the subscribe button if you haven't already.